Welcome to a Work in the West podcast, supported by funding from the Social Science and Humanities Research Council, and organized by Drs. Andrew Stevens and Sheila Campbell at the University of Regina. This alt-conference series interviews researchers, graduate students, and community members about the state of work and employment in Western Canada. Enjoy. Today we have with us Jeff Sweet. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background? Uh, Yeah, I'm a journey person electrician. For the last 15 years, since 2006, I've been working in Saskatchewan for my entire career as uh, an electrician, including my apprenticeship starting one. And I've been a member of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Local 2038 since 2005. And I've been a member of the executive of the IBW 2038 since 2008. And I am currently the president uh, and part-time organizer for 2038 as well. Thank you so much for telling our listeners a little bit about your background. Next, I'd like to know what got you interested in doing work related to labor organizing building trades? Well, it goes back even before my time as an electrician. I'm also a journey person cook, and I did that for about 10 years through high school and and beyond. And it didn't, it wasn't apparent to me in the beginning, but it did become apparent to me as I worked through the industry that there is a lot of liberties taken by employers and a lot of almost exploitation, I would say exploitation. One of the reasons why I got out of cooking was that I couldn't t- take the long hours and and the, the, the industry itself was a little bit self-destructive. So with that, I moved into a construction trade and picked electrical and started in that. And I didn't see nearly the same level of exploitation in, in construction, certainly not with the employer that I worked with initially. And then further along, though, there were times where, you know, we didn't get paid overtime. And despite what the legislation said, there were liberties taken by the employer. And one that was one of the reasons why I joined the union in the first place was to make sure that, that there was some protection in there. And once in the union, though, I found that there, there, there wasn't that same level uh, of exploitation. We had a collective bargaining agreement. Everyone knew what the rules were. And if they got contravened, there was a process to go through to get things fixed. In about 2011 or 2012, an organizer position came available in the local and I applied for it and got the job. And so that was, my interest came more in, in bringing that level of protection through a CBA, workers in, in the electrical field who were not protected by that. As, as I talked to people who were not members of the union, but who were electricians, I saw that this sort of exploitation was still going on, this skirting of the rules. And it, was, it had gotten worse, certainly, in the, in the eight years or nine years that I had uh, been a member, or seven years or whatever, that I had been a member. That was where my interest came. Was in uh, was in trying to lift those workers up and give them give them the protections that that I enjoyed and had seen not being enjoyed by them. And uh, what are the implications of your work for workers, policymakers, and organizations? Do you think? Well, I guess that depends on what you mean. My work as as a as a union president and uh, advancing 
the 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 organization itself or my work as an organizer i guess that would be the question that i have for you and i can i can go into both streams as a as an organizer the implication for the workers is giving them the ability or the knowledge that will get them into a place where they have the protections of a of a collective agreement there's a lot of there's a excess like extra stuff that comes along with that though so i'll i'll touch on my work as an organizer afterwards, but I'll, I'll follow up with some, uh, I'll start with some foundational stuff. And that is the implications of my work as a, as a union executive person and administrator and, and representative for policymakers and for organizations, <clears throat> the contractors are not beating down our door to be, to have their, their employees represented by the, the, the electrical workers by the IBW. And that's because they see it as a rigid structure for wages and a rigid structure for hiring and for working conditions. And to, to a certain extent, they are correct. We do have a CBA that outlines all of those things. Um, and for that reason, they, that's, that's the excuse given. And, but for that reason, you know, they, they will fight unionization tooth and nail to the bitter end. Most of them, there are some exceptions, but so the implications for the work that I do in that regard is pushing for better, better working conditions, better or closer adherence to, or full adherence to the legislation. And that would include ratios since electrical is a compulsory trade. And I didn't explain a compulsory trade, but as a compulsory trade, everyone who is working in the trade must be a registered apprentice or a journey person, a licensed journey person in the province of Saskatchewan. And we find that that doesn't always happen without strict controls and regulation through the union. Despite the strict regulation of the government, it, it's written down whether or not it's enforced all the time. I see, I see that it isn't often. So the implications for the other organizations and policymakers is we're a bit of a thorn in their side. We are a complaints-based system for enforcement, whether it's through apprenticeship or licensing, electrical licensing and inspections. And so if we see something going wrong, we will tell apprenticeship that it's going wrong because we don't have, there's no way for anybody to get back at us. If, if an employer isn't indenturing their apprentices as they're supposed to or within ratio, and we make that complaint, they, they, we can't be fired because it doesn't work that way. So we, uh, we do force enforcement agencies of all stripes to do their jobs or at least make complaints to them so that we have the information given to them so they can do their jobs. Um, now let's get back to the implications for workers though. When I say that, you know, we're here as an organization and I'm here as an organizer to give the information to a worker to say, this is what you have to do. You have to get a sign a card. You have to get your, your coworkers to sign a card. And then once we meet a certain threshold, we'll turn those in to the, to the, to labor relations board. And then they will trigger, that will trigger a vote amongst the employees. So there's a secret ballot vote that happens and it'll happen in a few weeks from the time that we make that application. But all sorts of mischief gets up to, is gotten up to at that point. The employer, if they didn't know about an organizing drive previous to that, they absolutely know now. And so the legislation used to say that an employer couldn't interfere at all uh, and couldn't talk to the employees uh, at all regarding organizing. Now, though, there was a there was a, a part put in that says that they can accept that they can express their opinions. 
And so it is explicitly, it is explicitly forbidden for the employer to threaten to close the, the, the business or to terminate people, lay people off, fire them, whatever, except that often it is their opinion that I won't be able to make a go of it. And therefore I will have to close the, 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 the company. I, I will be forced to. And so that, that threat is, is allowed to linger, even though explicitly they can't make that threat. They, they form it as an opinion and it becomes a thing. And often they will, in order to keep a union out, they will identify and terminate the lead organizers or the people who were involved in that. And it's an unfair labor practice and we have to fight it. And sometimes we win and sometimes we don't, but it's still, it's a, it's a reality for anyone who is attempting to organize within the building trades or anywhere that they will be terminated. And so job security uh, is, is always a thing, especially in construction where you don't work 24 seven or you don't work uh, 365 days a year. And that's always not, not always an option. So for people who work six or eight or 10 months of the year, it is a big deal if they were to lose their job, because that's, you know, they're, they're just not a lot of jobs out there necessarily. And there are a lot of construction workers. So, so the implications for organizing and for me helping someone along is that they are putting a lot on the line. They're putting their jobs on the line. It's a small community of uh, electrical workers or other construction workers within Regina. And so, you know, if you do this enough times, I suppose your name gets around and there's an unofficial blacklist that you get put on. So, so those are the implications after that I, that I can think of off the top of my head. I'm not sure if that answered your question or not, but. No, it absolutely does uh, answer the question. And next, I'd like to know what is the role of building trades in economic recovery post-COVID? And what role does labor organizing play in that recovery? So this one, it's a little hard to, to say for sure as we're just going through this recovery. And I think it, for all of us, it's our first pandemic. So we're not sure exactly what the reopening looks like and if they will, if there will be only one reopening and then everything is fine, or if we'll go back into some sort of a, a state where, you know, things become limited again. But the role that I see for building trades in a post-COVID world as part of the economic recovery is making sure that if a project comes up, we will always be able to, to find construction workers or workers electrical in my case, to man a job, to, to give them the, the labor that they need to finish a job, regardless of the size. Because we can pull from uh, all across Canada, our locals call for travelers if we need to, for you know the, the, a long time, we were in a bit of a bubble while the rest of Canada was suffering from, from a bit of an economic downturn. We had our local, 2038 had a lot of work at the Regina co-op refinery with the revamp and the expansion. And parallel to that, at, the, at about the same time, we had a large expansion going on at Rokenville in the potash mine out there. And then right after that wrapped up, the K plus S mine started. And our local is only about 450 members and we needed over the, over all of those, we need thousands of electricians and we were able to supply them from across Canada from really from coast to coast to coast. We had people from, from many locals, dozens of locals that worked here. It's also important too that, and I talked about, we don't know what this recovery looks like. The union always has the best interests of their members at heart. I like to think that anyway. And that means that where rules are implemented by the health region 
for same. There was a lot made of that. Construction didn't stop during the pandemic and during the health orders of uh, masking and social distancing and the like. It's been my experience when talking to workers outside of the union, there was a lot of lip service given to that by contractors, whether they were the general contractor or a specific trade contractor, about what the requirements were working close with a partner or in a crew and that you must wear a mask and that you must remain socially distant. Uh, and there was a lot of policy put in place and these are the requirements. But when you got out into the field, it was get the job done. And so a lot of that was tossed out the window and, you know, well, we need to get this done. So it's taken too long if we follow all the rules. So we're going to skirt those rules. And so I think for the building trades, it's going to be important that people feel the protection on the job site, that they are able to say, I'm not going to risk, you know, getting sick again. I'm not going to risk, uh, you know, my, my livelihood or my life just to get this job done. And they will feel protected in being able to say that and refuse dangerous work. Because just like organizing in construction, there's always a reason why you can be terminated, whether it's a layoff due to lack of, lack of, we don't have all the material we need, you know, we're ahead of the schedule. There's always a reason why someone can be, can be uh, let go through a layoff or through termination. And so job security is, is difficult for a construction worker to find, and they do need to make ends meet. And so it becomes more difficult for them to make, to make complaints. Sometimes the squeaky wheel gets replaced rather than being greased, so to speak. Thank you so much, Jeff, for telling our listeners about that and talking about economic recovery post-COVID. And next, I'd like to know, what are the challenges one faces in labor organizing in the building trades? I outlined uh, a few of them already in that when you're organizing in legislation, there are protections for workers who are attempting to organize. It's your, it's your charter right to organize and to belong to the union of your choice. And that's great, don't get me wrong. But in reality, I have seen people terminated for organizing and it can be months or even years before they are made whole again, if we win. So the challenge is getting people on board, you know, on the face of it, and just given, you know, all of the information, this is, this is the collective bargaining agreement that you will work under, this is the wage you'll make, these are the working conditions, this is the pension, this is the, the, the benefits, you know, on paper, it looks great, and it's, it's an easy sell, but there is work to be done at that point by those people who want to bring a union to their workplace, that includes putting their jobs on the line, and putting, uh, you know, with, with that in mind, putting their, their family's livelihood, their livelihood that, that they use to, to support their families on the line. And that becomes much tougher because the, there aren't enough, in my opinion, protections in place for those workers. When, when they implemented, they took away card check. At one point, we were able to get cards signed. And as long as you had 50% plus one, so a majority of workers who signed cards indicating that they wanted to be a member of the union. We would put those cards to the labor relations board and they would ensure that those people actually work there and that they would have been, that they would be part of the bargaining unit. And once that was confirmed, then the union was, the certification was granted in that workplace. 
one of the first things that typically conservative governments put in place, we saw this with uh, the SAS party and we saw it with Pallister in uh, in Manitoba, is they get rid of card check, that's called card check, and they, they get rid of it and they call for a secret ballot. And they say that this allows for more democracy in the workplace, where you know, everyone is, uh, there, there is, there is support that is proven to the labor relations board. And then, and then a secret ballot vote is granted and that way that there, the, the ballot is still secret, but you will get a, an honest appraisal of how many people want to have the union in place and not just, you know, some unscrupulous organizer or a person who wanted the union to be put in place, he forges cards or, or gets cards signed. But in reality, this gives the employer, especially with the change to the legislation that said that the employer could not uh, partake in any conversations or discussions about union organizing, when they open that up to allow for expressions of opinion and put in a two-week cool-down period or waiting period, that really allows the employer to work on the employees that are there. It allows them to terminate one or more, and that's kind of a, a warning shot across the bow, and, and then people decide, well, maybe maybe it's not worth it at this point. And so there's a lot of mischief that can get, that can happen at that point. And the, so the challenges are legislation and governments who want to see less of the exercise of your charter right to join. The other thing is, and I, and I, and I talked about this a little bit already, and that is, that the construction industry is so cyclical. There is, it's a feast or famine game. There are not very many people who are employed as tradespeople outside of maintenance who are employed at a single, by a single employer for a long period of time. We're usually hired for a project or a series of projects. And then once those are done, you go back home. And so it was, it was reality in Saskatchewan during that boom that I described with the, with the refinery going on and, and the, the two mines, you know, for, those were, those were union jobs, but there was also other work going on. And there was, there was a lot of work that construction workers could do. But since then there has been a, a, a lull, and this is the, now our, our Valley from the peak. And as a result, wages have started to go down and the, where do you draw that line as a person, as a tradesperson, to say, no, I'm not going to work for that amount. And we went from anywhere to $45 uh, or right around there to we're seeing journey person rates as low as $28. Uh, in one case, $25. I'm not sure if they, ever, if they ever got anyone to work for that. But I have seen journey persons working for $28 an hour. And that's a huge, uh, that's a huge blow. But it's still more than minimum wage. It's still more than, than working at driving a forklift in a warehouse, let's say, or you know something along those lines. It's still, it's still not the bottom. And so finding that line where someone says, "I'm not going to work for that," is difficult when you have a when you have a family to feed. So that's one of them. The the the. The union, the IBW only has a certain amount of market share. We only have so many contractors to bid the work. And when we have a, we have a collective bargaining agreement that dictates what the, what the wages and benefits and pension are going to be. So that number is static. Whereas for the non-union side, they can move their labor rates up or down depending on what the market requires. 
and the cost of materials is going to be the same pretty much from one contractor to another. And the time that it's going to take to do a, a specific job is going to be pretty consistent across one contractor or another. And so the only number that can really move to make yourself more competitive is your labor rate. And so this is where the argument from the contractor comes from, where we talk about organizing and their, their workers start talking about organizing. And that is that they say, I can, I can pay that, but I can't be competitive. And so we'll never get any work. And so you won't work. And so then I'll have to lay you all off. And to a certain extent, this is, this is true, I suppose, but we do have union contractors that are working all the time. And so it's not, it's not really true. There is still work that they could, they could get there. And I mean, changing the minds of the workers where they, they just won't accept that. If, if every construction worker, every specific to me, if every electrician in Saskatchewan said, I'm not going to work for any less than the union rate, and I'm not going to work under work conditions that are less than are dictated by this collective agreement, which was negotiated between contractors and workers. If they say this is our bottom line and we're not going to accept any, any more or any less than this, then, then we would, we would all be working at a union rate. If that makes sense, you know, they would still, I suppose, be able to get workers from other provinces to, to come in contractors from other provinces to bid that work. And, and they might be able to get it. But then the workers need to stand together and, and not allow those people to come into Saskatchewan and work for less than has been negotiated fairly between the two parties already. There's, I mean, there's, there's a lot of evidence that, that this would happen, this could happen. If you look at the, the trade deals since the 80s where you know, Ontario had a lot of manufacturing in it and and the free trade deals removed tariffs reduced them at least or outright outright removed them and the cost of living in ontario was far more than the cost of living in in say mexico and so the workers there demanded a wage that would a fair wage that would that would pay for their cost of living and and allow them to have a vacation you know and and feed their families and and, and have some have some leisure time as well and that was far more money on a, on a global stage than it would cost to manufacture in Mexico, where the cost of living is far less. And so those manufacturing plants were closed down and that manufacturing was moved to, to other places where it's cheaper to, uh, to, to buy the raw materials perhaps, or, or at least the labor is going to be a lot cheaper there. And so there needs to be a concerted effort by workers to realize our place and what our responsibilities and our obligations are going to be if we want to maintain a high standard of living. Otherwise, we will always be at the mercy of the outside forces and the global, global economy, extra-provincial economy in, in the case that I just mentioned, where someone who does live in you know, a smaller center and they can make ends meet with less money, although they have to travel for that work, uh, they can... They can work for a contractor who bids work in Saskatchewan and pays less than the cost of living here. So those are challenges. Job security is a challenge. The legislation is a challenge. Changing people's minds and it's organizing is work. It's not just you come down and to the union hall and you sign a card and then you're a union member and your, your contractor is, is union paying union rate. It's, it's much there's much more to it. There's uh, there's a lot of conversations that have to happen, a lot of hard conversations. And there is a lot of 
bureaucracy that has to be weeded through before you finally get to that point. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jeff. And I really resonated, you know, with your comment about, yes, organizing is work, it's hard work, and it's important work. And we're really um, glad that you were able to join our podcast interview and talk about the important work that you're doing with labor organizing and the building skill traits. Thank you so much. I certainly learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners did too. Thank you so much, Jeff. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity and I was happy to do it. The music in this podcast has been brought to you by Nick Faye and the Deputies.